collaboration over competition and that was the best thing that came out of what was a terrible time but first of all we probably funders would never have worked together probably um, there wouldn't have been the impetus necessarily to and for the first time charities were starting to work together like never before purposely podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Talitha, very warm welcome to the Purposely Podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you? Good, thank you. You are the CEO of the Gloucestershire Community Foundation. What's its mission and vision? So our vision is Gloucestershire is a place where people and communities are empowered to become resilient and strong. Um, I think the piece around resilience is really important because of the pandemic. What we're trying to do is work around setting our future up. So our, I guess our vision and mission is starting to look at root causes. Um, so our mission expands on that, increase our capacity through philanthropy, grant making and developing partnerships to help strengthen the capabilities of our communities in order that they are able to thrive. So we really want to try and support thriving communities rather than just sticking plasters. Wonderful. And you're one of a number of community foundations, aren't you? Give us a feel for the community foundation movement and how big it is. It's just incredible. So I had a, a meeting with uh, many of the chief execs for the first time in two years on Friday in London, where 47 community foundations, which spread across the UK, um, so there's one in every area. Um, obviously, we don't overlap, generally don't overlap. So nobody's in competition. We all have our own areas. We're completely independent charities, but we're together as part of a membership organisation um, run by the UKCF, is run by Rosemary McDonald. And she was actually the chief exec of Wiltshire, my neighbouring community foundation. She's amazing. And she's been there quite a short time and been there through the pandemic. So as a movement, if you like, we're in between, are we a network? Are we a movement? I would say we're a movement for incredible force for good. Yeah, agreed. And any ideas on um, t total funds under management? Like how much has uh, the community foundations have got in total? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. It is, oh goodness, is it a billion? It's a huge amount of money. Um, I don't have the figures to hand, but it's, an, so we're set up as an endowment model. Um, so there's two revenue streams, endowment and flow through funding. We've got a huge endowment now um, as a network uh, added up across the country with the 47 community foundations. That's a huge endowment. The reason why we want to build endowment is it will be here forever. So when we're all gone and dead and buried, <laughs> this is a community asset forever. And that's why we feel this model is so successful. Um, we do take flow through funding. So there's lots of one-off donations, whether it's legacies or various different donations that come through, which does get spent until it's um, completed in its spending. But actually the endowment model is, a, I think, is a fantastic model um, that supports communities forever. Yeah. And I think one of the wonderful things about community foundations is they kind of maybe give people an opportunity to give and have some autonomy over it, but not necessarily set up their own charitable foundation. Is that that's part of your pitch? Yeah, it's an interesting model because I think if you as an individual philanthropist wanted to start delivering 
grant making or, or or donations to charities, it's a minefield. And we take away the huge amount of administration that is incredibly costly. So if you were to set yourselves up as a, a charity, you need a board, you need to put together your governance, and there's lots of due diligence. And so you know, when even just preparing um, grants and funding organisations is is got a huge amount of work involved. So it's actually a really cost effective way of of delivering um, money into community. And often philanthropists will have an idea of the areas they would like to support. They're particularly touched by. They may have an experience in certain areas of community which are important to them. Or as a community foundation, part of our work is to be so embedded in our community, whether we do extensive research, which we completed recently, um, and just our knowledge on the ground, we're able to, I guess, give a good indication of the needs of the community at that particular time. So we say as a community foundation, we are there to support the changing needs of communities. And those needs aren't always the same. And that's why an endowment will continue to support the changing needs. So as a philanthropist, people can come and talk to us and, and, and even just say, look, I'm not quite sure um, what areas I'd like to support. Tell me about the community. Where are the needs? What's going on? Where do you think my money's best placed? And so there's two ways of us supporting philanthropists or people who want to donate. Wonderful. And Gloucestershire is an interesting county because it's it's full of it's kind of extremes, aren't there? These people with huge wealth, and then these also people who are massively disadvantaged, and it's you know got a real rural spread. So it's people like right across quite a wide county. Is it a, a county that you understand? Did you grow up there? Yeah, interesting. So um, I'm actually fourth generation, just over the border, Burford area. Cotswolds and Gloucestershire obviously is very, very close. And Gloucestershire spans a very thin um, county across the country from Gloucester to Morton and the Marsh. So I knew half of it very well. We've moved into Gloucestershire sort of five years ago, just over the border. So I'm near Sirencester. But interestingly, um, I probably felt I knew my community. I probably felt as we have family that have been here a long time. Um, that we knew our community, but actually really don't. Until I got into this job and this role, um, I've literally just scratched the surface. It is a really complicated county. Um, it is got so many layers and so much depth and community work and voluntary work is mind-blowing. It's just incredible. So we've got about 5,000 charities, 3,000 registered in our county, our small county, the work going on is is utterly mind-blowing. So for me, um, I feel incredibly privileged to be working quite deep in our community um, and for the first time really seeing probably what's going on firsthand. Yeah. And are you guys one of the more successful community foundations? Because they're often on a bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a league table around them sometimes, aren't there? Uh, some and, and and how you are now and what was the situation when you walked into the role? Because you took on this role um, three almost three years ago? Two years ago. So pre, just pre-pandemic. So I started um, in August 2019. Um, interestingly, I've come from the business sector. So I think going back a little bit in terms of coming into the third sector, voluntary sector, I'd never worked in the sector before. But the way I saw the community foundation model, it's a service um, role. We are here to serve our communities. We're here to serve our charities and we're here to serve our donors. So to me, it's a business. Um, we need to run as a business, 
but it's a guilt-free job because everything we do has social impact and it's uh, everything we do has a social conscience. So I love the idea coming from the business sector over to this sector. So when I saw the role, I actually didn't think I'd be probably considered because I had no third sector experience, um, but I managed to get a conversation and a coffee just to explore things with one of the trustees. And actually, you know, they encouraged me to go for the role and I'm so pleased I did. And I would like to encourage an advocate for many of the business people who are brilliant business people, but would like to transition into this sector. It's not as hard as it maybe looks because you're going from sector to sector. We need good business people in this sector. And actually, I'm so excited to have come into this sector. August, I started, got to the end of the year, had great plans for GCF. Um, and then the pandemic hit fairly soon on. Yeah, I came into quite a um, uh, an underactive. We were going 30 years, but it had been very quiet for about five years. So most of what we were doing was outsourced to one of our sister foundations in terms of the processing and the grant making. And there was one person um, sort of working on the ground. And the trustees took a hugely brave decision to invest in GCF and start thinking about how we can expand and grow because it was being underutilized. We we really probably weren't keeping up with the, the, the growth in the network. Um, so I came on board, um, had grand plans, as I said, to get to sort of the end of 2019, early 2020. And within a couple of months, by the sort of beginning of March, it was very evident we were going into a pandemic. And so I guess we hadn't raised money for a very long, I think 20,000 was the highest amount of money we'd raised in years. And I saw, and I guess the power of the network, being a relatively new person, I didn't have necessarily the experience of um, the sector of or community foundations, but the power of the network really kicked in. I could see what other really experienced chief execs were doing in the network. So by the second week of March, I could see this chief execs were reacting with, um, an emergency fundraiser. They were reacting with letters to the community, just reassuring everybody we were there. We would listen if we'd made grants. Don't panic. We're still there to support and we'll be flexible and trusting as possible. So I then decided, right, well, this is obviously the right way to go. I got a letter to my board and said, right, we need to react and get on with it. This is obviously a pandemic. It's obviously serious. We need to set up an emergency fundraiser. And actually, my board are brilliant. They reacted very quickly. We got going. And by the end of March, we were grant making to our community. That's how quickly we turned it around. So I set a, a, a very uh, ambitious uh, a target of £50,000. I said, come on, we can raise £50,000. And within six months, we've raised £1.4 So not wow. quite what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. And that's really the community responding to the need um, and really trying times, right? Yeah, it was really interesting because I guess as a community foundation, and we've been very quiet in the county, you know, that visibility wasn't there. I guess for me, falling back on why business experience is so good um, in terms of whether you've got marketing background, you know, PR background, you know, sales background. The fact was there was a real opportunity to support our county as we'd never done before and really step up. And I think when I started hearing some of our chief execs who had been in post a long time, who are hugely successful, some of the MBA graduates, some of the, you know, the top of their game, they rang me probably the third week of March. And I remember a conversation with one of the most incredible chief execs. And she said, Talitha, 
this has been the hardest week of my career. And I thought, blimey, if you're struggling and this is tough for you, imagine our small community groups. Imagine the, the, the those that don't necessarily have the skills or the, you know, the experience to survive this. So yeah. I started feeling, we both were, my grants manager and I, Sarah's been incredible. We became a listening post, I guess, people were ringing us and talking to us and uh, and and almost not a counselling service, but we were listening. And I think very quickly I realised I needed to be much more vocal about our sector and what was going on. And that's when I started reaching out to all the uh, newspapers, uh, local DJs and radio and just said, look, we need to start shining a light on our sector. Basically, uh, you know, not surprisingly, but statutory provision isn't hitting the ground and much provision is not there. And actually, charities are filling the gaps at the moment and we need to support them and they need moral support. This is a really difficult time for them. So where we'd probably never had that um, media presence before, it hadn't been a story that the media had wanted to pick up before, suddenly the media was saying we've really got nothing else to talk about other than the pandemic and we'd love some great stories. So before you knew it, I was managing to get great charities on the radio, on the TV, really push them forward and and show the community just how valuable the charity sector is and the voluntary sector. That was exciting. That was so exciting that finally the forgotten sector in my mind, and it has been pretty much forgotten, and it doesn't get the accolade it should have because people tirelessly work away and don't get the recognition. It was the first time our charities were really getting some recognition, and that was amazing. And I guess the feedback to us was, Talitha, you're giving us some hope. This is a really tough time. Anything positive is so important for us right now. Um, So without, I guess you just have to go with what's going on week to week, day to day, things were changing and you just had to make the opportunity as it was in front of us. Yeah. And also um, uh, a question I had to mind was like, how does that money come in? Like, was it in lots and lots and lots and lots of small donations or was it a couple of big chunky ones or... Yeah, interesting. So I think because the Community Foundation Network reacted so quickly, we were the first responders, if you like, across the country. We are set up to react quickly. Our processes, our systems are incredible. And, you know, I think as a network, we showed just how um, valuable this grant making process was. And then the National Emergencies Trust, they'd only set up the year before with a couple of people. And again, they hadn't been going long and suddenly there's a national emergency and they started raising huge amounts of money across the country, lots of celebrity endorsement, lots of PR, and they chose community foundations as their partner. So probably half a million came in from them just to our foundation. And the rest was made up of some really chunky donations um, from other philanthropists that realized they wouldn't be able to deliver as quickly as us. And as we were there delivering, people were there supporting us in that delivery, which was absolutely brilliant. And then it came in from some private donations and smaller donations. Every time I was on the radio, it was interesting. Suddenly donations would come through on our website. So PR was really, really important to get the word out was really, really important. But we also had to deliver. You can't raise lots of money and not deliver it because that's the worst possible thing you can do. You have to make sure you're delivering it. And that's what we were doing. So we were doing a grants round every week and turning around monies within seven days. And those funds were absolutely vital because a lot of the funding out there just wasn't hitting the ground and it took months in in order to that to hit to the hit the ground so for us it was so important 
And what came out of it was really, really interesting because we started delivering the funders in the county started to come together and we joined something called Gloss Funders. So that was about all of us coming together as a funders network. And actually, that was fantastic. Charities were saying it was so good to see funders working together for the first time. So I guess similarly to um, London funders after the Grenville Tower crisis, London funders have been such a fantastic example to all us about how funders can work better together. So we did that piece of work. Actually, it was really vital that we had these weekly meetings and we could talk about funding in the county and come together. So out of delivering and out of doing our work individually, what we saw as as a sector and as a county, probably pre-pandemic, there was a very much a feeling of competition over collaboration. Some say it's probably fueled by funders, but charities really didn't feel like they wanted to work together because they're all vying for the same funding pots. So there really wasn't the appetite to work together. What was just incredible was within a short period of time, it was collaboration over competition. And that was the best thing that came out of what was a terrible time. But first of all, we probably funders would never have worked together, probably. Um, There wouldn't have been the impetus necessarily to. And for the first time, charities were starting to work together like never before. So it was absolutely brilliant to see that through this really difficult time, uh, a massive cultural change. Yeah, because, I mean, the level of uncertainty back then was off the rip scale. Um, and um, hopefully uh, just the legacy of what you've just described will have charities continue to work together better in the future. Now, just changing tack for a moment and, and looking back at your career. So a background of working in fashion, uh, fashion retail um, and some luxury brands. So is that what you wanted to do with your life was fashion a draw card? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I um, I dropped out of uni. My parents split up and then I dropped out of uni and I thought, you know what, I just need to work. I love business, I love working. And interestingly, um, I was in Melbourne in my early 20s for uni. I dropped out and then started a job in a little fashion store, which is still going strong and I'm still in touch with my boss to this day. Uh, Joanne Griffin's one of the best little independent retailers in Melbourne. And that's where I started my career. And she was a really savvy businesswoman. I thought, God, this is exciting. Then I set up my own catering business 2020. And so I was always very entrepreneurial and business minded. But I realized having my own business at that age, I'm not sure how much I'd learn. And then I came back to the UK. So I'm British born, lived here till I was 10 and we emigrated to Australia. Then I came back at 22 back to the Cotswolds, back to my roots and uh, back to family. And I got a little job in Oxford back in retail and my career sort of took off from there. And I guess for me, I've always loved people, either having people around me that work with me, seeing them grow and develop, love customer service, love the whole service industry, whatever that is. But obviously fashion, I was always loving fashion. So that worked well. And then I got approached to run the Bitter Village outlet store for Karen Millen, which was probably the best opportunity I I could have ever been given. Bitter Village was really starting to take off. And coming into Karen Millen at the time, Karen and Kevin ran the business. It was a very, very exciting brand that was expanding rapidly. Um, We went from about 50 stores to 150 stores, and it was so exciting. And, you know, amazing entrepreneurs, amazing product, amazing brand. And I guess I learned my people style there. So probably out of most retail companies, Karen Millen was all all about developing people. It was all about training and developing people, a really good culture of trust and kindness. And I was just very lucky at an early age to 
work in a culture like that. And that I get to set my life of how I sort of see um, people in business. And I was there eight years because we just lived and breathed and loved the brand, loved the people. And everyone was there for a very, very long time. So I guess the, we had the one of the highest retention rates in retail at the time. So very exciting. But then um, I had a decision to make family and personal wise. And I had a mum and I had a gran who wasn't great. And I thought if I carry on traveling and living this career, I'm not going to be here for my family. So made a massive decision to drop out of my career, bought a hotel in the Cotswolds, uh, where my grandmother came to live with us and in, in the village that we're from, uh, in the town we're from, and hoping to bring my mother back from Australia, who had Parkinson's very, very young. And so I kind of gave up my career for family reasons. And we ran a very successful business and both of them passed away. And I felt I gave what I needed to give to my family that I haven't regretted anything. But then it's very tricky when you've worked for yourself yeah. to get back into an industry after seven years. Um, and interestingly, um, when I started to knock on the door of retail, I was told I was irrelevant or probably past it because I'd been out of the sector so long. And it was the first time I was just absolutely oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I really have wrecked my career, you know, having sort of taken this break. But actually, um, I got my foot in the door. It's perseverance, persistent, networking, LinkedIn's amazing, and went back into luxury goods, but furniture retailing rather than fashion. And actually, that was fantastic because that was the time when, you know, people were starting to invest in their homes. And from there sort of grew um, my retail career back, which was brilliant. But actually, it got to a point, I guess for me, there was a, a slight nagging on so my contents, if you like. 20 years ago, when I was in fashion retailing, I never thought about the impact on the planet. I didn't think about where products were made. That just wasn't in us, you know, just wasn't being talked about. And you know, 20 years down the line, we are talking about it. And you feel incredibly guilty when you're not sure what your impact on the planet is. So my love, I guess, and my passion for retailing just started to decline because I love the people element. I love the service element. But deep down, I didn't feel satisfied, if that makes sense. And that's when this role came along. And I had never thought about working in the third sector. I always volunteered in my personal life. I was the youngest person to run a WI, which was interesting, yeah. <laughs> president of the WI. And I felt I did that in my personal time because they needed um, to sort of save the WI, if you like. There just wasn't anyone coming in and taking over. I built the membership back up. So in behind in a private life, I'd always yeah. volunteered and didn't really think about a career in this sector. But when this job and this role popped up, it really, really resonated to the fact that oh my goodness, I can have a guilt-free job. I actually, everything I do will have a positive impact. And I have never looked back and I have to say, I just don't think I'd ever leave this sector. It is absolutely brilliant. I knew I would feel it would be rewarding and I'd feel good, but I yeah. had no idea how exciting it would feel. It feels as exciting as 20 years ago in retail because the people and the work going on is mind-blowing. It's so exciting. And I had no idea that this would fuel the fires again, I guess, of my passion. Um, and that's in a, you know. I think your aut autonomy as well that it gives you. So being, you know, you're, I know you're, it's a small operation in terms of numbers of people. Yeah. Um, but you're, um, you know, you are effectively rowing your own canoe and you've got that <laughs> day, 
day to day, but then you're part of this bigger network as well. So, and you're part of this movement as we talked about earlier. Yes. Um, and what, what are the aspirations? Like, where would you, where do you want it to be? Um, you obviously would probably prefer not to have to respond to any more pandemics and this one can, um, jog on. If, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, where, what would you like? I see that you're hiring a, uh, so another member of staff, which is yep. great, a philanthropy manager. Yeah. So obviously looking at kind of scaling it and growing it a bit more, establishing it. Yeah, so it's really interesting in the network. There's a, a constant discussion and change around the focus of your organisation. So there's three elements and we all set up similarly, but do things in different ways. So the three elements of philanthropy and obviously raising money, building endowment, flow through in order to deliver as much as we can. 100% of everything we do goes to charity. And so then there's grant making. So all the money you raise has got to be delivered. And that means more and more work goes through the grants team. And then there's a piece around community leadership. And that is all about how we learn and develop and understand our county and how we can convene. So my role in my head is not to be um, sat at every table having every discussion, but, but we're too small for that. But what I like to do is push others forward that maybe haven't had space to talk or haven't been recognised before. So I think the old way of community foundations and probably funders is always to have a seat at the table. And I guess that's not my focus. I don't see that as a valuable use of my time, but I do see it as an opportunity as I get to know people in the county, that there's some brilliant people in the county that are never sat at the table or who are nev have never been heard from before. And I think it is definitely our duty to push people forward if that's what they would like to do and make space for others. So there's three elements. Now, philanthropy is obviously key, but actually I need to develop the grants team as well because as money comes through, they need to be able to deliver it. So there's this constant balancing act between sort of these three functions and each community foundation does it slightly differently. For GCF, obviously, I do need to build those funds. The more funds we have, we're one of the smaller community foundations. So if we think my endowment sat at 7 million, and this is not my endowment, it's a community asset, it's not mine. But as a community asset, it's sitting at 7 million and our largest community foundation sat at 90 million. So there's so many different sizes, but actually that, you know, if we can build that endowment, that is going to be there as a community asset forever. And that will be grant making forever. So I guess for me, and that's the whole piece around our vision and mission, I would like to see more work being done at the root causes of. So where we want thriving communities, like you say, no, we don't want another pandemic. But the pandemic that everybody's gone through, certainly thinking about my county, it has been a huge learning curve for everybody. We at first thought 50% of charities were going to go under. So there was quite a panic about that. We did a huge piece of research, which looked uh, over 100 respondents from across our county. And we looked at things around resources and what did charities need in order to survive and thrive. And that was really interesting. We thought more charities may have gone under and they didn't, interestingly. They really did adapt. They really did manage to keep going. I don't know how long for. Some of them are obviously you know, using reserves, but it is actually a, an incredible network, strong network. But I guess in terms of building resilience for the future, what do we need? So part of our questionnaireing to these 100 respondents was, how can we support you in other ways other than funding? 
you know, our pot's quite small, but what can we do to support you in other ways? Because what we don't want is to hit another pandemic and everyone goes into meltdown or doesn't have the skills to be able to adapt. And there's more that people need in order to survive and thrive. Mm. So that was a really, really interesting response. So when we asked out, there was a, a number of things we said, could we help you in other ways other than funding? The top respondent, uh, I think 60%, was they wanted help to form partnerships. And this is the piece around the pandemic and cultural change. It was so interesting to see that our our charities and our in our county wanted us to really actively play a part in, in, in supporting partnerships. And that's what we've continued to do. We've continued to do that in a couple of ways, but that's been really powerful. I've had people say, oh, you know that event you did on Zoom and launched this and did that, which was great, but actually the value I got was having a chat with someone in the chat box and we're now working together. And I'm like, wow, that is brilliant. If all I have to do is an event so people can chat in the chat box, <laughs> then that's fantastic. Um, now, interestingly, the other piece that started to come through very strongly was about charity leaders and feeling isolated not having people to talk to. Maybe their board came a bit quieter over the pandemic. A lot of boards have older people who are isolating or feeling vulnerable and maybe not so active. So CEOs are feeling pretty lonely and it was a huge amount of weight on their shoulders. And 20% of respondents were charity leaders and they asked for support in mentoring. And mentoring became a really big piece of that for us. So we came together on this piece of mentoring for charity leaders and this isn't about coaching. These are people with incredible skills, great charity leaders, but that needed someone to talk to outside their environment, not somebody in work and not a trustee, wanted someone outside that they could really talk through things with. So we launched a program and partnered with the Cranfield Trust and the Honourable Company of Gloucestershire. And we have launched this year um, the Invest Programme, and that's for Gloucestershire Charities. And the first two programmes are the Mentoring Programme and the Peer-to-Peer -peer Programme, and that has been incredible. So we've put 13 charity leaders through the Mentoring Programme. And it sounds like uh, it's quite a simple thing to do, offering somebody to listen, but actually it's pretty life-changing. We've had people that have had six sessions, it's an hour a month, and have just had someone to talk to to unpack all of the decision-making they have to make and really think about the future and that resilient planning. Yeah. So we've been able to think about supporting in other ways other than funding. That is, I think, probably areas which we'll continue to explore and continue to support alongside money. Yeah, because I think if I look at some of the charities that exist in your county, they've really... Uh, the, the value or the sort of the the sort of wonderful things that have happened in the county in terms of the third sector has been from really settled intelligent experienced skillful ceos who have hung, hung in there yeah um and i know i know from some of those leaders that they've hung in there because they've had support yes and, and so you know initiatives like your own um you know i'm thinking about gloucestershire counseling yes um you know like great leadership there so all of what you described is is hugely important how do you get your guidance inspiration what do you draw on for your sort of mentors I've been fortunate enough to have a brilliant chair so my chair in the day I guess of um chairs thinking it was maybe two hours a month and that's all that was required um, my chair Jamie Table is an incredible person 
who is so kind and so giving that actually ended up working full time for us through the pandemic. I'm not quite sure that's what he expected, but that's what he did. And he was very, very willing to do so. And he became a major part of our team. And actually all of my trustees in every way have supported us. And my whole board has come together. So I have been very fortunate to feel very supported by my board. And in order to talk with people maybe outside, I mean, my husband's brilliant. Um, He'll listen to me all day long, which is brilliant. Probably why we've survived 25 years. But, you know, I guess talking to other charity leaders is key for me, people that are in my role, but outside of the organization. And I think that's where that networking and partnership working is so key. I'm a natural networker. And I'll naturally form a collection of people around me that I can talk to about different things. But not everyone had that. And I realized that in our county, not every chief exec or charity leader is a natural networker. They've maybe been used to just running their organization brilliantly, but not necessarily having to reach out to people unknown. And so for me, I realized just how vital my network of people around me were. And other chief execs and other charity leaders definitely gave me, you know, support and talk through things. Every day, every week, there was always a really good conversation. So, yeah, I do feel I I felt, and also the network. I think the network, I had a couple of chief execs in my network that have been here, say, 10, 15 years. um, And I have continually asked them questions. I've continually showed them some of my ideas. I've continually, so I'm always sense checking. So, for me, um, I have a gut feeling how and which way to go. But actually, I think it's really important to set sense checks. So even if you think you're doing the right thing, especially when you're new, I've been really fortunate to have some brilliant chief execs in the network. And so, yeah, I feel I've had quite a lot of different mentors, if you like. I think it's wonderful. Um, well, it's been a real pleasure to, to talk and um, congratulations on what you're achieving. And um, yeah, exciting future ahead. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 